0: and welcome to Business Without My name's Dominic Friesby and Ori Clark is a firm that specialises in both the law and accountancy and one of its partners is Andrew Ori, my co-host. And Andrew had the thought that or made the observation I should say one day that his firm had so many interesting clients doing wonderful and interesting things and he decided he wanted to share these, these interesting things with a wider audience and so the result is this podcast. So Andy, hello. Uh, how are you doing? Who's our guest
1: today? Who, what are we going to be talking about? A wonderful, wonderful introduction. Thank you, Dominique. As always, uh, we are joined by the somewhat legendary uh, Courtney Fingar. I've never actually tried to pronounce his surname, uh, but that was my attempt, who was editor-in-chief at a magazine called FDI, part of the FD group, and is now heading up a new, a new publication at the New Statesman uh, magazine, focusing on innovative uses of technology and data in journalism. How's it going, Courtney?
2: It, it's going well. Thank you for the kind introduction. And you did pronounce my surname correctly, which not everybody does, so well done.
1: Thank you. And um, I mean, the obvious place to start is tell us about what you're doing now. Exactly. What What's the New Statesman up to? I've kind of sort of, you know, uh, it's, it's it's a publication and it's such a legendary one, but I, I'm not sure it's direction these days.
2: Well, it's uh, a, a new direction in part. So most of you will know the New Statesman magazine, which has been around for more than 100 years. And when they first, uh, they approached me last year And I thought, what on earth does New Statesman want with me? Um, Because I'm a very B2B business journalist working in the niche area of foreign direct investment. And it turns out that they are building uh, quite aggressively and a a quite exciting franchise of business-to-business journalism um, based heavily on data and analysis and they wanted to launch a range of online-only publications looking at different industry segments. And it was a really fantastic opportunity to stay in my field, which is foreign investment, but do something new. So we've launched our own publication called Investment Monitor, but we have some sister monitors that are in in this new division as well, one called City Monitor and one called Energy Monitor, a tech monitor, and pretty much the, the name explains what they what they are focused on. And so we do work with our colleagues at the New Statesman magazine, but we work more, I guess, in, in parallel rather than on the same publication.
0: And when you say foreign investment, is that foreign to where?
2: Well, I guess foreign is in the eye of the beholder. So we're looking at FDI a, across the board. So for the UK, foreign would be, you know, any A company from any other country investing in. But for the US, that means any non-American company. So it's just whichever direction. I mean, we look a lot at the UK because we're based in the UK, but our focus is global. And we look at all sectors because every sector has its aspects of of foreign investment flows.
0: And if you were, what what should I be putting money into at the moment? What's the go-to sector?
2: Well, I should make a caveat that I'm not so strong on investing as in stocks. We're more looking at investing, you know, where a company will put its factory, where it puts its call center, where it sets up its corporate headquarters to get whatever advantages it gets. So there are certain um but there are sectors within that at space that are doing better from COVID than others. Obviously, you know, healthcare, uh <laughs> pharmaceuticals, life sciences um is is a big sector at the moment that clearly is is of heightened importance. E-commerce, logistics to support e-commerce because we're all sitting around ordering from Amazon um, all day. Um, renewable energy is actually doing well despite the pandemic um, at the expense of traditional energy. So those are some sectors that I'd call out as bright spots. I tend to, we tend to look at sectors. So what, how sectors are performing Um, which companies are active, but also we care a lot about which countries are attracting investment and we're studying and comparing the competitiveness of different countries in terms of how they look um, as destinations for investment.
0: Well, that's great because that was going to be my next question. So, what are the we got the hot sectors? What are the hot countries?
2: Well, interestingly, um, I, I did for a change put my money uh, or my husband's money where my mouth is. Um, <laughs> I've been <laughs> bullish um, on Eastern Europe for a while, and in particular Poland, which is you know has been doing really well for um, essentially the last two decades and. Um, is still a really good investment destination because it still has cost advantages, but the quality is going up and up and up. So it's in that kind of sweet spot where it's still cheaper than operating in the UK or somewhere like, or Germany, um, but you're still getting a lot of the perks that you would get in a developed market. And my husband um, has two startup companies and one of them was reaching the phase of industrialization and he needed to put the first factory somewhere. And he wanted to put it in Florida. Um, But unfortunately for him, you know, I I had my views and, and, you know, he when you're married to an expert on where a company should locate, you do have to take some of my advice on board. And I even had some spreadsheets. Um, and he is now currently um, hating me because he is spending November in Poland instead of in Florida. Um, and <laughs> his factory is weeks from launching. That said, it, it has proven to be the right Location, the logistics, because you you need a mix of things. Um, you want good infrastructure, a good transport logistics setup. Again, you want high quality and and highly skilled good workers at a low cost. You want a you want a good business environment. A whole like cocktail of things, and not every tax e- is a
0: big factor as well. Is it as well, tax and regulation?
2: A- absolutely, and the tax matters especially a lot depending on the type of operations, clearly if you're putting a headquarter or something like that. And no, no market is perfect, so they all have their downsides and their flaws, and it depends a lot on what type of, of facility you wanna put, but that's a long way to say that I'm quite bullish on the markets of Eastern Europe, in particular Poland, which I have been for a while. For things like technology, uh, I like small, what I would class as small savvy countries like Estonia. Lithuania is really hot for technology right now. And it's also in that sweet spot of uh, strong skills, low cost. Uh, we do a lot with Costa Rica. Costa Rica is... Is small but savvy, and they're really smart about everything they do, and they have a really sound business environment um, with a good location to do some nearshoring, for example, to serve yeah. the U.S. market. These are these are among the places that I like. Then you have like big, sexy, complicated markets. I like my stands quite bullish on on Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, which is a little further behind, but but coming up.
0: Yeah. My next question I want to ask you is, which of the countries are you phobic about? But I won't, put, I won't, I won't <laughs> ask put you to me- say that.
2: <laughs> I, I do have my secret list, but don't put me on the spot that way. <laughs>
0: Do you do you find yourself, I mean, you've got to be very careful because once you start stereotyping in on on the basis of nationality, you know, as you're on dangerous ground. But do you find yourself doing that to a certain extent when you're looking at, you know, what you would consider good places to invest and, and bad places?
2: I think I think it's it's dangerous as you say, but it's so hard to avoid. And, you know, there's always there's negative stereotypes and there's positive stereotypes, right? And there I do think that Stereotyping individual people is unfair, but there are national traits that you can clearly see because it you know, there, there are aspects of culture that do kind of band people together and and give them a shared kind of way of operating in the world. And I think it's fair to comment on those. And those those do impact again the working culture. They impact how a place is for business. Now, what we can't take away is that as people, we have our biases, right? So, um, and Andy will know. Anybody who's ever been out for drinks with me knows that I am a raging Slavophile, you know. I, and I have my business reasons and my economic, and my I guess my FDI reasons that I'm quite keen on. Um, Eastern Europe and CIS countries, but then I'm probably also biased because these are places where I enjoy the culture. I click with the people. So I kind of understand them. And I don't think we can really get away from that, but that has a role to play in business, you know? And I think that what's there's a, uh, you know, a lot of books have been written about understanding other cultures and how business people should deal with, you know, people of other cultures. Um, and I think that, that there is something in that and and the way that people operate as cultures definitely impacts how they how they work in business i mean you're getting a kind of shared i guess global business ethos and and language but i think you can't take the culture the cultural aspect out of it and it doesn't always have to be a negative either
0: I, I was interviewing uh, David Friedman, who is Milton Friedman's son. You know, he's a big, he's an anarcho-capitalist. He basically believes in as little government as possible, preferably none. <laughs> and uh, he was, and I was saying, if you were a young man, where would you go? And his choice of country was Estonia.
2: I'll see, that adds up. And yeah, and they're doing interesting things. They have an e-citizenship now. I mean, you can register a company very easily there. You can even be in citizen of Estonia, they make it really easy. Interestingly, and and, and similar to that... Is, is
0: it, it's not part of the EU, is it?
2: It is. Um, so you get all the perks of that. Um, neighboring Finland is, is making a really big push now. Um, also has a very good business environment and they've launched a program called like 90 Days of Finn or something funny like that. And they're inviting people to come and essentially get all these perks and try out Finland for 90 days. And I do like these... Um, small countries that try to think a little bit outside the box because when you're small, that's kind of how you need to operate, much like small companies need to be more innovative and push the boat out a little bit. So yeah. I tend to like, yeah, I, I I tend to like these kind of places. And, I mean, you could do worse than, than, you know, pitching up in Estonia, I think.
0: If you look at the GDP per capita, the richest countries in the world, the top 10 are all small. I think America's 11th, but the top 10 are all small. That's partly because you know, for example, Ireland is seventh. (laughs) And if you ask the typical Irish national, if they felt they were the seventh richest citizen in the world, they'd probably say no, but it's probably part, that's partly because big companies like Apple and Google and so on base themselves in Ireland. And so that distorts the averages, but even so, you know, a lot of the economic success stories, if you like of the second half of the 20th century, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore and all those kind of places, they were all small.
2: Yeah. Well, it's just easier to manage, easier to get it right in a way. Um, rather than a big, rambunctious. I, and if you look at India, for example, India is a really exciting destination for business, but it's big, rambunctious, a messy democracy. You know, it's just not as easy to uh, affect change and and tidy up the business environment as it is in a small country. And that's just the reality. What the big countries offer is that they're more complex, but they have the big opportunity to sort of match the big hassle. And I always say, when you, when you think of the competitiveness, if you're going to have a messy business environment and, and be complex and therefore kind of higher risk, higher hassle, you better have the big opportunity to compensate because if you offer a lot of hassle without the opportunity, you've got nothing. Where, where yeah. the small smart countries are good if they realize they've not got the scale of opportunity. So the only thing they can do is make it as easy as possible.
0: I'm interested if we're going in with these small countries, not just competing for for workforce, but are we going to see sort of competition between countries to to make themselves more friendly in this new sort of globalised post-COVID remote working world? Are we going to see competition, you know, lowering regulation, lowering taxes in order to attract investment? and and if you don't make yourself business friendly you lose
2: yeah there's two competing trends quite interestingly because on on the one hand yes that you might see what some people would call a race to the bottom and others would call a race to the top of how how easy you make it how how appealing is your tax structure and what's your business environment like and there's going to be less investment going around so unfortunately COVID has hammered foreign investment flows. So they dropped 50% so far this year compared to last year. So it's pretty ugly.
0: That's amazing. That is ugly.
2: Yeah. So on the one hand, you th- you would think, well, there's less investment going around. So it's a smaller pie that the uh, countries need their piece of at a time when their economies are struggling. So they need this investment even more. So perhaps that desperation might lend themselves to making their environments and their tax situation as, as appealing as possible.
1: We're, we're working towards, I guess, are we in 100 years where foreign direct investment should almost decrease because the world equilibriates. I mean, if you, China's the easiest example. They came in and they said, We've got a billion people and they're cheap. And everyone went, Shit. And then they moved all their manufacturing there, and then we got all these cheap goods, which we were like, "Yeah, cheap stuff," you know. And now they say it's ended, and it's like there will never be another China, is what I was reading in, you know, the Economist. Sorry, your your uh, competitor, but you know, there won't be another China to come in and drop things like that and bring that much global workforce to the world. So now, you know, we're going back to inflation. All these really complicated questions. I guess you said it. You want to work. You want an environment where it's easy to business, but I. I day, it's a bit like you're watching these big drug companies at the moment. Maybe we want collaboration as we want. And Britain, I have to say, wave our flag a bit. We're, we're incredibly open to do business here. I mean, you know, there are no restrictions. You don't need UK directors. No one, nothing needs to be owned by a British person and it's paid dividends i would say for us overall yeah anyway i mean it's such a it's i'm just sort of curious where you know are we over time is foreign direct investment naturally should go down as everything equalizes
2: well y- you do make a point that you know over reliance on foreign investment it-, it can be dangerous right because what what this crisis showed it highlighted problems in supply chains for example and if you have centralized systems where, I don't know, this widget, most of the world's widgets of this particular type are made in one place in China. And then that market shuts down and those factories shut down because of COVID. I think it happened years ago um, in the 90s, actually, where all the chip makers had all put their factories in Taiwan. And then there was a, there was an earthquake and then nobody can produce anything that requires a microchip because that one part of Taiwan was decimated. So what tends to happen is every 10, 20 years, a crisis happens that spooks uh, companies about being overly reliant for their supply chains on certain parts of the world. And it's like, we need to bring things at least closer to home, if not home. And we're we're seeing now a potential wave of reshoring and bringing some production back home, um, wherever that home might be, um, out of this fear. If you take the UK as an example, uh, we, we just did publish a, a deep dive on manufacturing. I mean, essentially uh, my reporter who wrote it, I told her she should get actually a dissertation because it's such a super deep dive, thousands and thousands of words um, and data looking at British manufacturing over the past 50 years and how it's performed and what happened to it. And, you know, during the 2000s, um, all the foreign investment focus was on services, right? So what you saw was that obviously manufacturing shrinking and the services economy growing, which is not a bad thing. But then all of a sudden, everybody wondered, where's the manufacturing? And the manufacturing was a lot of reliance. You know, if you look at automotives, on foreign automakers coming in you have these big plants from Toyota and others and they're now spooked by Brexit so you have this difficult situation where it and this is where I'm going with this it's also not that easy to quote unquote reshore if you haven't had these capabilities in decades, right? You know, you, if you start to rely on other places to produce parts or, you, you can't just flip a switch and bring it back. It has to be thought of strategically over a matter of, you know, years and decades as to what you want to be producing in your domestic market and where you're getting your supplies from. My worry again with Brexit is, the, the biggest disruption for Brexit is cutting off at least in the short term, if we if we crash out, um, the the supply chains that are linking the the manufacturing industry of the UK to to Europe, it's it's a real disaster in the making. Uh, but what what's what's true is that one way or another, business will adapt and find a way to cope with you know whatever the situation is is going to be.
0: Yeah, I mean all the problems are regulatory. And there'll just be so much pressure on them. You know, if necessary, they'll just open the doors and everyone can travel back and forth with their goods as required and until they sort out the regulations. I'm, I'm interested to learn, Courtney, a, a little bit about your backstory. I think you're 15 years at the FT.
2: Yeah, that was a, a not to sound too um, cheesy, but that was a quite a life-changing job because, you know, I'd I'd grown up in in Alabama and not really traveled or went anywhere. There wasn't really the opportunity. And then um, I came to the UK and I ended up getting this job at what was a small, obscure magazine at the time, which is why they hired at the time I was 28, I think. But it opened up this world of foreign direct investment, which was just amazing because I realized that it's actually quite high profile, right? Because FDI is kind of top of the agenda of every. Government. So I suddenly found myself on a plane every week traveling all around the world, and you end up interacting with presidents, prime ministers, oligarchs, you know, CEOs, and it opened up a kind of crazy world that I didn't really ever think I would find myself in. Um, because of the nature of the topic. And I, you know, it was extremely interesting. It was a new magazine, so I kind of made it my own, which was really rewarding. We built it into something very successful. But the experiences, you know, I went on assignment to more than 80 countries when I was there. And again, you deal with people across the board of every, every all the kind of corridors of power, really. It was completely fascinating.
0: I am... Um sort of cut my teeth as a stand-up comedian early in my early in my career. And I found comedy on the sort of grassroots level when you're just sort of talking to other comics, it's pretty open. But on the whole, it's such a saturated business. And there's so many comedians competing for so few spaces, whether it's the top gigs on the circuit or the gigs on the telly or whatever, that it's actually a really closed world and it's a really hard world to break into. And, you know, whenever you go to parties, nobody wants to talk to you and everyone's looking over your shoulder to see who if they can talk to somebody better. And then, bizarre chain of um, circumstances, I ended up getting this job writing for Money Week and I was sort of investing a lot in mining stocks and this is a big mining boom in the noughties. And I was going to all these mining conferences and I just couldn't believe how open and friendly Everyone was and everyone treat. you know, it literally didn't matter what age, race, class, education, nothing mattered except the quality of your rock. <laughs> um, but it was it literally the only thing that mattered. But but that sort of attitude that you find in mining, although it's very gung-ho, you just find it across the business world. Whenever you go to a conference, it's so open. Everyone wants to know who you are, how they can help you, how you can help them, all this. There's none of that in the entertainment industry, which you would think would be the most open of all, but in fact, it's the least open.
1: It's kind of nice to see now, I mean, you know, the famous Elon Musk or the rich, it's kind of nice to see that there are, whether you like them or not, celebrity businessmen, because in a weird way, the businessmen run the world probably more than politicians, you know, and a good businessman changes the world. You know, there's some beautiful examples in history. Yeah. And you must say, you you look at, you know, Amazon or Google
0: or Apple, the CEO, I mean, Jeff Bezos is probably more powerful than most prime ministers and most presidents around the world, isn't he? If you think how powerful Amazon is.
2: I agree with you. And I mean, I think it's, I I think there's always these, I guess, dilemmas um, that we talk a lot about, because I, I agree that it's good if you have, I guess, to have business people who are famous because at least they've built something. You know, they have to have some brains. They had to have a vision. Um, and and the the companies themselves have had to, you know, they, they've created jobs. They've done a lot of good. But we are seeing like this kind of, I guess, backlash against these all-powerful companies. And as you said, like some of the companies are worth more than, you know, the GDP of half the countries in the world. Um, And we do a lot of um, kind of writing lately on analyzing the, not just the morality of business, but for example, the morality of FDI. Um, And I think we're entering a new area, not to sound too hippy-dippy, but I think that the companies are, um, and these, you know, kind of rock star business people um, need to find that balance of, of not believing their own hype and you know, trying to, I guess, affect good things in the world. And there's nothing wrong with, I object to a kind of knee-jerk feeling that big business is always bad and business people are bad and banking is bad, for example. It's just not true because they deliver a lot of things that the world needs in terms of jobs, products. Um, but I think we're entering a new phase where there is more pressure on them to be sure, to be, sure that they are i guess productive members of society as as companies so i think that that's something that we're looking a lot at at these days
1: investment monitor that's what you're doing now i mean you're what you're focused on sort of cfo's trying to give them balanced credible research data is that fair
2: it, exactly we're just trying to Purely through the prism of, is there, for example, there are a lot of things that a C level executive would need to be concerned about and and need to know. But we are trying to help them in that area of their business where it comes to how they structure their company globally, where they put their facilities, where the um, where where the workforce is coming from. So in that aspect of their job, we are trying to do our best to give them the tools that they need, the information that they need based on on data, not just, you know, assumptions. So we're trying to make sense of this kind of FDI landscape for them, which is not the same, not, not telling them what they should do, but telling them what they should know and perhaps want to think about as they make these decisions.
1: I have one other thing to say, which is that it really strikes me there's a problem with this Content, like right? Because good content from good journalists that are well-researched costs money and therefore you have to pay for it. So there's a barrier to get it and the shit is for free and it's getting worse. So now if I want to look up the good stuff on you or uh, Economist or the FT, I now subscribe to loads of FD, economists and everything because I'm 42 and I actually really want this information.
2: Well, you will be pleased to know that Investment Monitor is free to read, so...
1: There we go. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) I walked into that beautifully. You did.
0: (laughs) What are you most excited about for the future of your business? We've sort of been teetering on the edge of that just now already.
2: Well, I think the media is changing a lot. And one of the reasons that I joined this new um, company is they're very forward looking at looking at the future. Of how content will be consumed and delivered, and there's a lot of exciting things happening in, in terms of AI. And you know, I, there's a kind of scary idea of robots writing news, which sounds really awful, but it's not. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on about how we can use AI in clever ways to collate masses of information that has been interpreted by data scientists and experts and then communicated by journalists and I I'm really optimistic that these models that are being kind of trialed and now might solve Andy's problem of you know how do we get the really in, incisive useful information that cuts through all the all the crap that he's seeing out there on the internet. I think so it's an exciting time in in media.
1: So that means like that's clever. So you not the AI is going to take your job and you can go for lunch. You mean you know uh, that it can go and read the 5000 posts on this subject that I might read over a 5 week period if I'm really interested in the subject and I'll scan through and sift and get a picture and present you a sort of consolidated view. Is that the sort of thing you mean?
2: In in really simplistic terms, yes, but the the key to using the AI is then things are vetted and almost goes through a funnel. of of clever brainiacs to interpret it. And and that allows us to have access to vast pools of of data and information that then we can properly um, interpret and communicate to our readers, which then saves them masses of time of trying to collate hordes of information and data. And this is where things are going and there's a lot happening in that space. And I think five years from now, these things will be in place and will hopefully improve access to good quality information. So I think that's exciting an exciting thing that's happening in our industry.
0: A necessary thing too. Good stuff. And now for our final question. If there was one thing in the world that you could change over the next five years, what would it be? And don't say Brexit.
2: Well, no, I won't say that, but I guess I would say that i um, I, I would hope to prevent this sequence of events from happening again related to the pandemic. So, my biggest wish was that we don't end up here again, you know, that we have, that there would be the means to, I guess, stop such a pandemic um, in its tracks in the early stages so we don't go through this again and all the suffering that it's caused.
1: That's a good answer. Yeah. Much better than
0: mine.
2: <laughs> and, well, tell me yours.
0: <laughs> we need to we need to qualify the question with what could you actually change <laughs> yeah. over the next foot Yeah,
2: yeah, that that's probably not so realistic, but that's my wish anyway.
0: Good stuff. Well, as we close, Courtney, why don't you give yourself and your publication a good, solid plug?
2: Well, thanks for that. As you just heard, Investment Monitor is free to read so you get good quality content on important topics that impact business, finance, politics, trade, economics, everything that matters essentially. Um, it is found at investmentmonitor.ai and the AI stands for artificial intelligence, which is why oh, we're wow. so big on that. Um, that's because we are moving into this future of using AI. We have a free weekly newsletter that's very engaging, entertaining, and very concise that'll tell you the top things that we think are important that week. And you can sign up for that on, on, the, on the top of our homepage. And so I hope you
0: do good stuff dear listener thank you very much for listening courtney fingar thank you very much for joining us
2: thank you for having me
0: our pleasure andrew ory thank you very much for co-hosting the show for me we will be back with another program very soon and make sure you subscribe to the show so you catch the next episode of business without until then from andy uri and me dominic frisbee it's cheerio